0: Well, I'd like to invite you to turn to your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 31, Luke 4, verse 31, you'll find that on page 860 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Um, It's a great delight to be with you this morning as we consider God's Word. I I do, as I I often urge you, hope that you will open the Bible this morning and, and just not rely upon the screen as we... Read it first of all. We have fourteen verses here. We are going to be constantly going back to the text as we really just walk phrase by phrase through this incredible story—a life, a day in the life of Jesus. And so, what was Jesus about? What was he doing? And it's an extraordinary display of both his power and love. And I look forward to considering, with it, considering it with you this morning. So, Luke chapter four, verse thirty-one. Please hear now the word of God. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching on the Sabbath. And they were astonished in his teaching for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out in a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. and he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. And when the sun was setting, all those who had, all those who had any who were sick and with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid their hand, his hands on every one of them and healed them. Our Father, we're thankful for Your Word this morning. We're thankful that we have the great honor to consider it and to consider You through it. And we may gaze upon our Lord this morning. We pray that this would not just be a routine for us. We we pray, Father, Your people pray, will You not send Your Spirit now? Will He not come now? That we may be given eyes to see and hearts to delight in our Lord, in our Christ, in our Redeemer, in our King. Your people need help, Father. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was because of the great human cost that during World War I, a triage procedure was developed in the makeshift hospitals near the front line. The doctors would color tag all the patients that came in, the the colors remaining a secret to the patients, but known to all the medical profession. There were one of three colors you could get tagged with. One color was the color for hopeless. It was determined that nothing could be done to save the individual. Another color was hopeful. It was a color given to those who were injured, but would survive even without medical treatment. And the third group was covered doubtful that they would live, but only if medical assistance was given to them immediately. And because of the shortage of medical supplies and the mass amount of people that were coming into these hospitals, it was only the doubtful that received medical attention. Well, there was a soldier, an American soldier named Lou in World War I, whose leg was badly wounded. In fact, it was, it was uh, hanging barely upon his body. And his doctors came by and quickly surveyed him and realized this man will not survive even if we treat him. And so they tagged him hopeless. Well, there was a nurse working by Lou, and she noticed that he was conscious. And so she began to speak with him. She soon found out that they were both from Ohio, actually very near from each other. And she got to know Lou over the next couple of hours, began to grow fond of him. I just couldn't let him die. And so in the middle of the night, this nurse, breaking all the rules that were strictly enforced, came and changed Lou's tag from hopeless to doubtful. As a result, Lou immediately received medical attention, his leg being amputated, and after several months of treatment, he had a full recovery and lived a long life, simply because this nurse changed his tag, gave him a chance to live. I once wore a tag. My tag said, hopeless. Jesus Christ has come into my life. He has changed me. He has changed my identity. He has changed who I am. He changed my tag. He changed what he thought of me. He changed how I behaved. This is what Christ does. He comes and finds people who are hopeless, outcast, destitute, marginalized. And he redeems them. He changes them. He proclaims the good news to the poor. He comes to proclaim liberty to the captives. He comes to recover the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Of course, that's the text that Jesus chose to initiate his ministry as he preached in Nazareth that we considered the last couple of weeks. In fact, he preached a sermon in his hometown so good that a riot broke out and everyone charged Jesus and attempted to murder him, to kill him. And yet, passing through his midst, their midst, he went on his way. He left Nazareth and went off to Capernaum. We see that in verse 31 of our text. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And Capernaum uh, is, will be one of Jesus' main cities there ministering in Galilee. In fact, we kind of begin a new section here in Luke's Gospel. Really, you could begin from Luke 4.31 all the way through Luke 9.50. Now these four, five, six chapters are Jesus' ministry in Galilee. He's revealed who he is. He's been baptized. He's passed the test of his temptation. He's proclaimed that he's the Messiah of Nazareth, and now he begins his Galilean ministry, where he is going to teach the people by his words and by his actions that the kingdom of God has come upon them, and he will do this uh, largely from Capernaum. Capernaum it will be a, is a decent was a decent sized town. We know that there was a centurion there, so there would be a, thousand, a hundred soldiers there. We know there was a tax collection booth there, and so it must have been a town of, of significant size. It was, uh, some people speculate, a town 10 to 20 uh, times the size of the little town of Nazareth. You know, what Luke tells us that he went down to Capernaum in verse 31. And that's not in, um, in compass direction, that's an elevation. Nazareth is about 1,200 feet above sea level, Capernaum about 700 feet below sea level. It's situated on the north edge of the Sea of Galilee, which is an enormous freshwater lake, 13 miles by 8 miles large, and therefore allowing for a prosperous fishing enterprise there in Capernaum, in addition to a major agricultural trade center of that day. As I mentioned, it will be an important ministry, uh, a town in Jesus' ministry in Galilee. In fact, in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1, the Bible refers to Capernaum as his own city. And so Jesus adopts this as his hometown. And he's going to travel back and forth from Capernaum. It's kind of like his ministry base in Galilee. And so he'll stay there and then he'll travel out for a number of days and he'll come back and then he'll go out again. He's always returning to Capernaum. And perhaps he did so because many of the disciples lived there. We know Peter and Andrew, James and John called it home. We also know that Matthew, the tax collector, lived in Capernaum. And perhaps Jesus would actually live in Peter's house as many people speculate. And so here it is, Jesus in Capernaum. We just see in this text a day in the life of Jesus when he preaches sermons and fights against demons and rebukes fevers and heals an entire town and then wakes up early to find a quiet place to pray where he is interrupted by well-meaning people who are attempted to get him off his mission. And we see what Jesus is doing. He's doing exactly what he said he was. He's coming to to reach out to the poor and to the blind and the captives and the oppressed. He's come to bring the kingdom upon uh, this world. He's come to change people's tags. And he's able to do so because he has authority. He is a king. And they, they begin to realize this. And you'll see this throughout this text that they understand that this man has authority unlike anything they've ever seen. In fact, Jesus will refer to the kingdom there in verse 43 when he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And so he's come to bring God's kingdom upon this world. God's rightful rule to this world. That, that God would begin to rule over people and to people would begin to submit their life to God in his kingdom. Of course, we saw the kingdom of God in the book of Genesis. Right? You want to see what the world's like when God is ruling? Read Genesis chapter 2. you find no war there. No crime, no poverty, no disease, no injustice, no suffering, no broken relationships, certainly no death. The reason is because God was ruling. And now we have rejected his rule. We have rebelled against him. We want to rule our own lives. I like the illustration that Tim Keller uh, paints. He says, imagine a a perfect car, a a beautiful car, a masterpiece, maybe something you find down in Middleburg, you know, Rolls Royce or something, right? Now you have this picture of this car in your mind. Now now picture a five-year-old driving it. I have a five-year-old. That's not going to go well. Right, things are going to fall apart. Things are going to get destroyed. Lamp posts, mailboxes, perhaps little cats, right? Pedestrians, passengers, and certainly the car will fall apart. Now, there's nothing wrong with the car. The car was perfect. It was just never intended for a five-year-old to drive it. Well, God created this world perfect but it's supposed to be under the control of God. It is supposed to be the kingdom of God. And we've made ourselves our own king. And, and though we're created to serve God and love God and obey God and find our delight in God, we've taken the wheel. We're driving now. problem is we don't know how to. And so we ruin everything. And Christ comes to this earth, an earth which is falling apart spiritually and physically and emotionally, psychologically. And he comes to begin to bring the kingdom of God back to this earth to show us what it's like to live under God's rule, under God's reign. He comes with this power that no one ever imagined. And so let's this morning consider the king's authority. It's displayed throughout this text. We see, first of all, the king's authority in his teaching. The king's authority in his teaching. Note Verse 31, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And so it's another Sabbath and we find Jesus where we expect to find Jesus at the synagogue and at the Old Testament church, as was his custom that we considered a couple of weeks ago. And there he is once again, he is preaching. He was teaching them on this Sabbath day. Now we don't know what Jesus was teaching, but we know it was good for we read in verse 32 and they were astonished at his teaching. The literal rendition is that they were struck with a panic. They were shocked. His preaching delivered a mighty blow upon them. Some translations say they were thunderstruck. Now what's amazing to me as a preacher, as someone who tries to do this for a living and I see Jesus show up and preach, is the fact that Jesus has not received any training on preaching. In fact, Jesus has only been preaching perhaps for a, a week or two or, or maybe a handful of months. He's just starting at this. I, and, and, and yet, even when he's starting, people are astonished at, at what he's doing. I remember my first sermon. I, I preached uh, at Crescent Baptist Church, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And when I preached, people were astonished. Uh, they, they were astonished they could sit through it. Right? Uh, right? When you, uh, many people have to deal with growing pains for preachers. I read of one great Scottish preacher, a, a mighty man in the Word. When he stood up to preach his first sermon, he became so afraid he ran as fast as he could out of that church building. And yet Jesus is here and he's preaching and and everyone is amazed. In fact, one of my favorite stories of of Jesus was when the Pharisees have had enough of him and they send these officers, right? These are policemen. These are soldiers. They send them to go arrest Jesus. And so they come, a whole group of them, and they come to arrest Jesus. And yet they come back a little bit later to the Pharisees, but there's no Jesus. And the Pharisees say, well, where is he? I thought you were going to arrest him. And it's amazing what they say. They they didn't say, well, he just passed through our midst or he did some magic power trick and he defeated us. You know what they said? Never has a man spoken like this before. Even his enemies are overwhelmed about his message. Without a doubt, he is the greatest communicator this world has ever seen. They are astonished. In fact, they are astonished, as you know, in verse 32, for his word possessed authority. A parallel account says He taught not as their scribes. And you know how their scribes taught. They would say, you know, it is written. And then they would tell you what, what is written. Or or even the prophets, right? They would say, thus says the Lord. And they would tell you what the Lord does. Very much like I tried to preach. And you know, this is the Word of God. Let's consider the Word of God. And and all these people who, who teach uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they all come and, and they say, okay, I'm going to tell you what God says. But Jesus shows up and, and says things like, you've heard it said. But I tell you, let me let me explain this to you more fully. Let me add to it. I have told you something different. You see, what Jesus does when he teaches is he claims original authority. Now, everybody in your life that has authority generally has derivative authority. That is, the authority has been given to them by someone else. The authority is not in and of themselves. So a general has great authority. But really, a general can't do anything to a soldier in and of himself, but he has the entire military system standing behind him. And he gets his authority from them. Or a police officer really doesn't have authority in and of himself, but he has the authority of the system of handcuffs and a gun on his belt and, and tickets and jail or a teacher. She doesn't have authority in and of herself. But she could write an A on your paper or an F on your paper or send you to the principal's office because she has the school system standing behind her. She has been given authority. She has derivative authority. All authority in this world has been given to them except for Christ. He doesn't get authority from anyone. He has it in and of itself. And we see this in His teaching. You know, sometimes Jesus will teach and He'll say, Truly, truly, I say to you. Or I think the King James says, Verily, verily. I sayeth unto you, right? And we think that, well, that's interesting. That sounds kind of quaint and fun. But it's actually astonishing. He's literally saying, amen, amen, I say to you. And this day when a rabbi would would come to preach to the people, the elders would actually come and sit down in the front pew. And if they agreed with what the rabbi was saying, they would shout, amen. They would ratify The truthfulness of what was being preached and then when the congregation would hear the elders say amen that they would know okay what is being said at that time is true and of course we continue this tradition even today right and someone preacher will stand up and some preacher will say well jesus is the son of god and jesus rose from the dead and and then someone you know may, may say amen right you may even hear that sometime today in fact uh thank you brother um right on cue um Sometimes preachers will even ask for an amen, won't they? Right? If they're not getting the amens they want, right? They'll say something like, don't you love the Lord? Amen. Right? Question mark. Amen. Right? Jesus never asked for an amen. Jesus never asked any man to ratify his teaching. We don't have the authority to do so. We don't have the authority to judge him. In fact, he says, you're not going to judge me. I'm going to amen myself, even before I teach you. What I'm about to tell you is utterly true. Amen, amen, I say to you. Understand that this is the Son of God. You don't have the right to evaluate him. You don't have the right to say, well, I like this over here, but I don't know what Jesus... I don't know about this part. I like 95% of what you're saying, but this 5% I have a real trouble with. I mean, who are we? How is it that our cultural sensitivities or our personal preference become so authoritative that they have the ability to evaluate the Son of God? If He is the Son of God, then everything He says is true, whether we like it or not. And He comes with great authority calling for people to submit to His truth. Authority in his teaching. In fact, his teaching was so powerful that demons begin to come out of hiding as we consider the first miracle that Jesus performed here. Secondly, understanding his authority over his enemies. Note verse 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out in a loud voice. There's a man who's dominated by a demon, possessed by a demon perhaps. You notice where he is. He's in the synagogue. He's in the church. We should probably therefore get rid of the silly ideas that all the good people are within these walls and all the bad people are outside these walls, right? The Ju- Judas was in the church. The devil sends... Uh, wolves in sheep's clothing within the church and we see this clearly here that this man is is there uh remaining totally undetected by everyone until christ shows up i mean who knows how long he's been there and week after week listening to these droning rabbis not disturbed uh, in the slightest at what was being said and jesus begins to preach and as people begin to sit there astonished this man begins to scream and writhe in pain This man begins to recoil. This man begins to cry out, as Luke says, with a loud voice. The light of Jesus is too much. And like foul things scurry away when you lift the rock. And so this evil spirit recoils from the teaching of Jesus. James, the brother of Christ, would say demons believe and shudder. Luke here shows us what that shuddering is like as this man begins to shriek, perhaps stopping Jesus in the middle of his message. Luke calls him an unclean demon here. Then in verse 36, an unclean spirit. He's unclean not because he's, he's, he needs a bath or dirty in any way, but he's morally filthy. He's coarse. He's unclean. Luke explains here that there are such things as spiritual beings. They are not physical beings, though they have a physical impact. The Bible explains that these demons or unclean spirits were once angels created by God to worship God, to honor God, to serve God, to love God. And they rebelled along with an angel named Lucifer. You can read about it if you want to in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and Revelation 13. And now there are spiritual beings that oppose us. They work against God and His image bearers. They persecute Christians. They tempt us. They accuse us. They try to confuse us. They have false teachers on television. They have false Christians in churches. They have false religions around this world. We have an enemy, but let's be clear. Our enemy is not equal to our God. It is not two gods battling against each other. It is one Creator and everything else is creation. And He will lose in the end. This devil will and his minions will. But they exist. I think, therefore, we would be foolish to ignore them, to deny them. Likewise, we would be foolish to think they're behind every corner. I think there's probably two errors that we should avoid. Uh, some people are fascinated with demons. Some people, uh, if you're struggling with sin, they say, well, you must have a demon bothering you. If you're prideful, well, you have a demon of pride. Or if you're, you're, you struggle with gluttony, you have a demon of gluttony. And the Bible doesn't, never teaches that anywhere remotely. I think this is just a way to excuse our sin and blame it on someone else. And so we probably should avoid being fascinated with demons and the toaster's broken it must have a demon or anything like that. In fact, I read one story of a couple having a, a fight and they were you know, being very ugly towards one another and the fact the wife was amazed at how ugly the husband was being towards her. And she concluded, well, this is not the man I married. He must have a demon. And so in the middle of the fight, she begins to ca- try to cast out the demon out of the man. Well, the man didn't appreciate that at all, right? And so he he concluded, well, there's only one explanation for this, that she must have a demon. And so he tried to count. So you got these warring exorcisms going on in their kitchen. And it's just goofy, right? It's just silly. We should avoid that silliness. And that's out there. But the much more predominant uh, error is to just totally deny that they exist, just to go along our way, pretending that they're not there. After all, we're enlightened, you know. We have colleges and microscopes and things like that, and we, you know, we've moved beyond, right? Isn't that primitive to believe in demons? Primitive people believe in that, right? And so, the great, um, great in some sense, uh, uh, New Testament scholar, great in the eyes of this world at least, Rudolf boltman said, "No one can avail themselves of the benefits of modern medicine and technology and still believe in a world inhabited by demons." So demons are kind of like on the order of Santa Claus. Who so, you know, we we may believe them in that time, but we kind of move beyond that. We outgrow our belief. And I'm just not sure why that's the case, especially when I, we see them all over the New Testament, for instance. And and if we could believe in a supernatural God, why why can't we believe in a supernatural evil? I don't know how those are logically inconsistent. And, and, and I don't know if, if it's people that look at the world and think it is so lovely and wonderful and harmonious that it's just too hard to believe that there are supernatural forces stirring up trouble in our hearts i think we have an enemy we see him here in this church service this synagogue service at nazareth a real enemy yelling in the midst of the service could you imagine what that would be like the the hushed congregation kind of sitting motionless under the power of jesus preaching and all of a sudden it's shattered by this man's shrieks as we see in verse 34 ha he says what have you to do with us jesus of nazareth That's an idiom. What do we have in common? You know, we have nothing to do with each other. Why are you here? Why are you bothering? Leave me alone, he's saying. This demon is clearly aware of Jesus' power. He feels threatened by him, as we see reading on in verse 34. Have you come to destroy us? So there's this cry of dread. He knows that Christ one day will eternally condemn him into hell. He says, is that this day? Now, I want to be clear here, by the way, that, that sometimes we get in our common culture, hell is the realm in which the devil rules and the demons rule and they're there torturing those who are cast into hell. And such thoughts are nonsense. They're not biblical. Hell is a place of torment, not just for those who refuse Christ. It is a place of torment for the devil and his angels. And this demon clearly is aware of that as he cries out in dread that he knows what one day will, is coming for him. But do you notice how he puts it? He says, have you come to destroy? us meaning him and the man right he's holding him hostage if you're trying to get to me jesus you're going to have to harm him as well leaving the question can, can jesus take care of this demon without destroying the man without harming him well he has one final cry we'll answer that question in a moment by the way one final cry i know who you are the holy one of god and so he has good theology certainly Everyone else is missing it. And uh, uh, tragically, the, the demon knows the truth, as we'll see often in Luke's gospel. And so this demon challenges Jesus. And there is, I trust, dead silence there in the congregation. Everyone's heart is pounding, at least for a moment. His Christ will quickly speak, as we see in verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. He does. He obeys. As we read on, and when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And so, so the demon throws the man down. In Mark's account of this event, he says he threw him down and he violently convulsed before a horror, horror-stricken congregation. And with a terrible shriek, the demon left him. I imagine many people are wondering, is this man dead? Is this man, has this man been destroyed? But Luke will help us understand. Dr. Luke says, he rose having done him no harm. Rises from the dust, liberated, whole for the first time in life. Who knows how long for Christ has come to set captives free this man is freed by Jesus and the people respond as we would imagine in verse 36 and they were all amazed and said to one another what is this word for with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out they were amazed at first and his authority and his teaching And now they are amazed again at his authority over demons. They have good cause to be because in this day they had exorcists, something that had developed in Israel perhaps about 100 years before Christ came. You don't find any of that in the Old Testament. But they had developed these rituals by this time, perhaps adopting from the cultures surrounding them. And these exorcists would have these bizarre rituals. They would put rings under people's nose and recite incantations. Or they would take a knife made of iron and cut off the possessed man's hair, braid the hair, tie it to a thorn bush and speak a spell. And they would do that three days in a row. And they had all these strange rituals and spells in which they would cast in order to have victory over the demon. And Jesus shows up and he does not say, okay, where's the iron knife? He doesn't show up even and say, okay, everybody just kind of stand back for a moment and roll up his sleeves. And he begins to say, I tell you in the name of. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't command the demon in the name of anyone. All he says is to him, leave. Shut up and leave. Get out of here. He speaks that great word of authority. Be silent, he says. And the demon throws his little tantrum and then obeys, leaving the people wondering what is this word? What is this power? What is this authority? Well, it's the king's power. The king has come. In fact, later on in, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus would say, If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here. I'm bringing the kingdom. And even though this evil force completely dominated this man, just one word and he is sent away by Jesus. One little word shall fell him, as we sometimes see. I do want you to note, by the way, as we marvel at the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, a point of application. You notice that this demon knows Christ. He believes truth, but it does him no profit. I think you and I should beware of unprofitable truth. I wonder how many people know biblical truth and even maybe store verses in their hearts, talk about doctrine, and yet have no love for God. Just like this demon. We may, many may, as J.C. Ryle, the great theologian of old, be nothing better than the devil's. We may go on all our lives saying, I know that, I know that, I know that, and sink at last into hell with truth upon our lips. Do you love Jesus? Not just do you know who He is. Do you love Him? Do you desire Him? Do you long to obey Him? Does your knowledge change your life, lead you to pursue Him? That's why He has come, to win our hearts, to invite us in His kingdom. His kingdom is also displayed in His authority over disease. After the healing, after the service, evidently the custom was to go to someone's house for a Sabbath meal as we find Jesus in verse 38. And He arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, by the way, this is the first time we're introduced to Simon in Luke's Gospel as we probably know more popularly as Peter. A little bit later, Simon is going to be called as an apostle in Luke chapter 5. But most likely Jesus is already very acquainted with Simon and his brother Andrew and James and John and others. And you can read about their initial interaction in John chapter 1. And so Jesus, aware of Simon, is invited over to Simon's house. It would be a house maybe around 500 to 600 square feet. Part of that house they would keep animals in. This would be a, a pretty nice house, a middle class house. And Jesus goes there to, to have a meal. But rather than a delicious meal, he finds a sick cook, as we see in verse 38. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. She has a high fever. It's probably not life-threatening, but she, she probably feels like dying. It's certainly kept her away from synagogue that day when this famous rabbi has come into town. I trust she would have longed to have been there, but she is unable to go, this Simon's mother-in-law. Now, I want just to note, just pause here for a moment and tell you that Simon had a mother-in-law. And as far as I, best I could uh, figure out, a mother-in-law is part of a package. Now, I'm going to tread carefully here, so you pray for me for a moment. All right i've never met a man in my entire life and maybe you have but i doubt it who said you know what i need i need a mother-in-law right right Right? they're they're generally looking for a wife right and then when you get a wife she brings a mother-in-law with her now i love my mother-in-law she listens to my sermons um and and She's going to be visiting in a couple weeks. So let's just clarify. When you see her, you just be be nice to her and let her know I love her. But but I was pursuing a wife. I just want to note that Peter, therefore, had a wife. There's no other way to get a mother-in-law than by getting married. And the reason I bring this up is there are many in the Christian tradition who would explain to you that Peter was celibate his entire life and would become the first pope. And the Bible just clearly contradicts that. And so does the historian Eusebius, who said not only did he have a wife, he had many children. And his wife was actually very active in the early church ministering to women, according to our historical documents. And so she's sick. And, and, and they say to Jesus, Is there anything you could do for her? In verse 38. And Jesus says, Yeah, I think I could handle this. As so we see in verse 39. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. He just, I imagine, takes her by the hand and lifts her because he knows the fever is gone and she is completely healed. As we, in fact, we look at verse 36 and immediately 39, excuse me. And immediately she rose and began to serve. And so you have this instant and complete healing. One minute she's lying in bed and on the next minute she's on her feet cooking. And I trust it was a great meal. I trust she worked hard to please Jesus who had just done this work. I trust she walked over to Peter and said, feel my forehead. I was burning up just a moment ago and I've never felt better in my life. In fact, I, I am full of energy as Jesus there sits quietly in the corner with a smile upon his face and she begins to serve Jesus. And I don't want to moralize this text too much, but I think we can learn from Peter's mother-in-law, can't we? That when Jesus works in our life, the best response to Jesus' work is to serve Jesus, serve the one who has brought us his healing, and to serve those whom he has healed. I think we should be more like the talkative woman who was found Christ under Charles Spurgeon's ministry and said, oh, Mr. Spurgeon, Christ has changed my life and he shall never hear the end of it. I think we ought to talk talk about Christ. I think we ought to serve Christ. I think we ought to serve one another as Jesus heals this woman demonstrating his power over disease. In fact, you notice that he rebukes the fever and it left. Just as he rebuked the demon and he left. So he has power over demons and power over disease. He has power in the spiritual world, power in the physical world, and even power over the masses, authority over the masses as we consider, fourthly, the king's authority over the masses. Note verse 40. And when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. You see, excitement is building in Capernaum now, isn't it? Word is now traveling. And there's electricity in the air. And there's a guy here who preaches like you have never heard. And he fights against demons. And he heals the sick. And he does it without a copay. And there is no line. And people begin to assemble at Peter's house. Waiting till the Sabbath is over. The suffering mass travel to Peter's door as the sun sets in the western horizon. I trust there was every manner of fever and cancer and crippled and disabled and blind and deaf, the diabetic, the demented, Some walked, some were carried, many moaned in their distress. And Jesus, perhaps calling for extra candles, gets to work with this surging mass of diseased and ill. You notice how he healed them? I trust he could have spoken a word and sent them away. But not Jesus. The Bible tells us in verse 40, he laid his hands on every one of them. One by one, he walks, perhaps placing his hand upon their forehead and whispers in their ear, Be healed. Be healed. He's not only displaying his divine authority, but at the same time, his tender mercy. He not just doesn't simply heal them. He does it in a way to show that he's loving and compassionate and tender, showing his power, showing his love, all pointing to who this man is, all pointing to Christ, that the creator is present in their midst. The kingdom of God has come upon them in this unrestrained display of raw kingdom authority intermixed with overflowing mercy and love for the hurting He heals the masses. In fact, some did not want to be healed, as we see in verse 41. And demons also came out of many crying, You are the son of God. And he rebuked them and would not have allowed them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. There are many there, evidently with unknown demons, and they start crying out, You, we know who you are. You're the son of God. Can you imagine the commotion of that night? The crippled and the ill shouting for joy, and, and and others with anticipation growing in their heart as they see Jesus begin to move towards them, intermixed with the hideous cries of demons. And Jesus once again silences them. They are not allowed to speak, and we wonder why? Because they're right. He is the Son of God. He is the Holy One of God. It's true. That I trust it is not an endorsement Jesus is after. It'd be like Hitler saying, "Yeah, Jesus is great. you got to go listen to Jesus. He's not not after that type of praise, not after that type of acclaim. And so he rebukes them and sends them away once again with just a word as he ministers to the masses, demons fleeing in terror and his presence, the bedridden tossing their crutches in air, the blind seeing the sick restored, the Alzheimer's recognizing their spouses or their children, the comatose lucid and talking and onlookers in a state of frenzied joy. Authority from the king is here. The king is here. And he has been sent by his father. His authority ultimately comes from the purpose on which he is sent. Authority from God. Consider fifthly with me. Note verse 42. And it was day. He departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. And so you can imagine the day that Jesus had... They're starting in the morning and going all the way through night. It was not a day of rest for him. I trust he got to bed very late. And yet he gets up before everyone. You read the parallel account in Mark chapter 1. It tells us that Jesus quietly walked out of the house, down the street in pre-dawn darkness, climbs a hillside to a remote place to do what? To pray. To pray. He wants to be with his Father. Father, I'm so tired, he might have said. Father, I need strength to continue this work that you've given me. Father, will you draw those who I have healed to you? Will you guide me today in your ministry? Will you let your kingdom come upon this earth? Your will be done here on this earth as it's done in heaven. Keep me, Father, from temptation. We're not sure how long he was able to pray. For he was quickly interrupted as we see in verse 42. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. They they want to know why Jesus is playing hide and seek. Everyone's looking for you. They want to keep him here. And you can imagine, though Jesus probably went to bed late that night, I bet many didn't sleep at all. I bet many were rejoicing in newfound health and testing working limbs and running their hands over new and smooth skin or clutching a healthy infant or feeling pain-free or clear-minded for the first time in years, and it dawns on them, it dawns on many of them, He needs to stay here. He is all that we need. He has to stay. Our very own miracle worker, our pastor, our counselor, our doctor, all rolled in one. Stay with us, Jesus. You notice how different the reactions are. In Nazareth, they tried to murder Him. In Capernaum, they tried to control Him. They tried to keep Him for themselves. They tried to use Him. Beware of trying to use Jesus. Beware of using Jesus just for your own gain. The people of Capernaum are the first, I think, of millions over the centuries who would come to Jesus just to get things from him. Happiness, wealth, uh, success, love, family. They want to magic Jesus. Make my life easier, Jesus. Make my life comfortable, Jesus. They don't want to submit to Jesus. They don't want to love Jesus. They don't want to worship Jesus. They just want to, to use Jesus. And then I trust they will toss Him aside whenever He is no longer needed. Like so many people, when tragedy comes and they come out to Jesus, Jesus, help me! And then when the tragedy has gone, they go on their merry way. That was the Capernaums. This is what they were doing. We know it because later in Luke chapter 10, Jesus would say, Woe to you, Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you shall be brought down to Hades. Stay here, they said. Bless us, they said. You notice Jesus' response in verse 43. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This extraordinary commitment of Christ as he's sent by the Father. In fact, we know, again, according to Mark's account, that it's Peter that first approaches Jesus. And we can imagine Peter with his out-of-breath excitement saying, Jesus, this is great, man. we got, we got all this momentum and everybody's talking about you and, and this is going to be big. And Jesus says, "It's not what I've come for. I didn't come to be a town's healer. I didn't come to be a miracle worker. I came, as he says in verse 43, to preach the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom has come. I need to declare what God is doing. I need to call people to return to God's rule. I need to offer amnesty to people who would lay down their arms of rebellion. I need to offer grace for sinners. Don't you understand that everyone is sick? Everyone is helpless. Everyone is hopeless. And I need to go preach. I need to declare to them that I am making a way to come to the Father. I am making a way to return to the kingdom. I need to move on and call others to faith. Call others to love. Offer forgiveness and healing. Have you been healed by Christ, friend? Has He saved you from your sin sickness? Has He healed you from your spiritual blindness? I praise the Lord what He has done in my life. Has He done it in you? In fact, He's not going to work miracles forever. He is going to perform one last miracle. We'll celebrate it next Sunday. He is going to go and on Friday, He is going to be nailed to a cross, pinned there to die. Not because He is bad. Not because He is evil. But because I am. And you are. And he does that because he loves us, and God pours out the punishment that is due to Stephen Carn upon Jesus Christ. He takes it all. And three days later he shows that my debt has been paid by rising from the grave. And now he declares, If you will bow your knee to me as your king, if you believe in me, I will save you. I will welcome you into the kingdom. Are you in the kingdom? Is Christ your Savior? The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can be saved today. What an extraordinary truth saved eternally today. Jesus says, I got to preach this word. I've got to preach it to other places. I need to preach it. I've been sent by my Father for this purpose. The kingdom of God is at hand. In fact, the kingdom of God is here. Our King has come, and He has brought His kingdom. And so I wonder how you and I, as followers of Him, as those citizens of His kingdom, should respond. Let me quickly, we've talked about other ways of application in this text, but let me quickly offer you just five ways in which we can respond to the fact that our King has come and He has brought His kingdom and He has invited you and I to be in it. You notice the first thing we can do is we can pray. I just am astonished here and I am so convicted here, my brothers and sisters, if Jesus needed to pray, how much more do you and I need to pray? And Jesus' response to extreme busyness and incredible popularity and amazing ministry opportunities is to walk away from it all to seek the Father and pray. Do not let prayer get squeezed out. Jesus never lets it get squeezed out. The busier He gets, the more He withdraws. The more He runs away from the masses. The more He hides in order to be with His Father. And I think if you and I are in this situation and, and, and things are going well and we have all the answers to people's problems and everybody wants our attention, the first thing we let go is prayer and solitude and abiding. Listen, Jesus plans to change the course of history. He plans to bring the kingdom of heaven from heaven down to this earth. And he thought prayer was too important to neglect. Who are we? May God forgive us. May God change us. May we pray. Do you pray? God, bring your kingdom. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here in my life and in my neighbors and in my church and my family and in the nations. We should pray. Secondly, we should Proclaim. Proclaim what Christ has done for us. In fact, I think we skipped verse 37 if you note what they did. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. They began to share what Christ had done. Just as Christ was going to do. I must preach the word of God. I must preach the good news of the kingdom. And, And they're doing this as well. They're spreading the word about Christ. And notice they're not doing this because someone guilted them in doing it. No, they one said, don't you love people? Don't you know people are dying and go to hell? You better get out there and share the gospel with them. There's no guilt placed upon them. They were simply just amazed at what Christ had done. They were floored by what they had seen and what they had experienced, and they couldn't help but share it with others. They couldn't help but go around saying, can I tell you what this man Jesus has done? I wonder if he's done anything in your life if He's done anything in your life worth sharing, worth getting excited about, worth proclaiming. That you might not do so out of a sense of obligation, but out of a sense for love for Him and who He is. That you might want others to know Him and to experience what you have. We need to faithfully share what Christ has done. When's the last time you've opened your mouth and literally shared with a non-believer a word of Christ? What Jesus has. I'm not even saying the full gospel. When's the last time you just said, I want to tell you what Jesus has done for me. Can I just take 30 seconds of your time and tell you what Christ has done in me this week or what he's doing to my family? Proclaim it. If he, only if he's done anything worthy of proclaiming. If he hasn't, then you could keep your mouth quiet. But they didn't want to. I also think thirdly, we should serve. And we see, what do we see Jesus doing? Exactly what he said he would do. He's caring for the poor. He's helping the disabled. He's later feeding the hungry. He's working for justice. He's, he's bringing the kingdom of God on earth. That's the kingdom of God. You do understand that the end of our faith is not everyone gets to escape this world and we all go up to heaven. That's not Christianity. Christianity is the city of God coming down from heaven onto this world. And that God is going to restore this world. In fact, all religions, all the world religions teach us how to escape the world. They say, live this way, do these things, don't avoid these things, and and one day you get to escape this nasty place. You get a new world, you get your own world, you get absorbed into the essence of God, whatever it is. And and Christianity comes along and says, no, God loves this world. God plans to restore this world. This world is broken because of sin, but He's not going to abandon this world. He's come to restore it. He's come to bring the kingdom of God here. And the kingdom of God is growing. Here, these people, we live in the kingdom of God and what we are called to do is to be a vision, a mini vision of what the future one day will be like. We're to show the world what it's like to live in the kingdom. Show the world what forgiveness is like. And acceptance and grace and humility and sacrifice and service and vulnerability and joy. Show the world what it's like to love the unlovable and look for hurting and the poor and the oppressed. Show the world what it's like to change people's identities. So please don't understand the church is a place where you come once a week to get some inspiration. Or like a support group for people who happen to be individually saved. No, God is creating a society, A kingdom in which people live together in community in such a way that it displays to a watching world another way to live. This is what he has done, and we should serve one another in that community, serve our community, serve our neighbors to show what the kingdom of God is like. I wonder when's the last time you've served someone outside of your family, served someone maybe even outside the church. When have you gone out and reached out to someone who's, who's perhaps you don't even know very well, but you want to bless them? Show them what the kingdom of God is like. Fourth, I suggest that we fight. I think there is a battle to build this kingdom. I believe we have an enemy. The Bible says in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Wherever the kingdom goes forward, we have an enemy who will oppose it. Uh, I hope you don't mind uh, learning about demons because Luke's going to mention them 22 more times in his gospel. They are everywhere in Jesus' ministry, trying to derail Him, trying to confront Him, all the way up to the crucifixion, and wherever the gospel is preached, wherever the kingdom grows, we will be opposed, because our enemy hates us, and he hates God, and he hates His kingdom. And so we need to fight. That doesn't mean we go out looking for demons. We're not all ghostbusters, and we're just going to run out and look for someone to zap. In fact, someone tried that in the Bible. In fact, seven people tried that in the Bible. They're the seven sons of a high priest named Sceva. They saw Paul cast out a demon, and they thought, that was pretty extraordinary. We should try that. And so they went and found a guy who was possessed by a demon, and the man says to him, you know, I know who Jesus is, and I've heard of Paul, but who in the world do you think you guys are? And that demon, read it in Acts 19, began to beat these men, and all seven of them ran out of the house naked and bleeding, running for their lives. So I think we should probably avoid looking for them. But nevertheless, we ought to fight against them. And the way we do, especially in your life, is you avoid giving them a foothold. Your your life is like a house. You leave the doors open, the windows open, people are going to move in, people you don't want living in your home. You dabble in sin. That sin soon will become a habit, and that habit will lead you to places you do not want to go. Don't give the devil a foothold in your life. Beware that you have an enemy. Lastly, brothers and sisters, I would suggest we hope. I read this, this passage and I, these people are in bad shape. I mean, these people are sick and uh, uh, dominated and these people are troubled. And Jesus just shows up and he's freeing them left and right. And that tells me there is hope for the worst of us, the impenetrable hearts, the irredeemable people that we have been working on for years and decades and seen no progress. Perhaps even the opposite. I tell you, there is hope for this world. There is hope for people in our lives. Our King has power. He has all power. And nothing is going to stop Him. And so hope as we live in this kingdom and follow our King shoulder to shoulder knowing that He will build His church. He will build His kingdom and nothing will stop Him for He has conquered the grave and shall come for us. Father, we thank You for our Lord. We thank You for His work. We thank You that our King has come. We thank You that He has great power then and great power today Will you help us to faithfully continue the work in which you have given us, Lord Jesus? Will you help Hamilton Baptist Church to be a people about your kingdom, a people who pray and proclaim and serve and fight and hope for the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.